Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew, a history podcast. I'm Mr. Rickson. And I'm Mrs. Allgood. Hello. It's good to be uh, to be chatting with you. Um, so a couple of housekeeping notes before we get started on today's episode. So next week, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from our regularly scheduled podcasting. But we have a really exciting reason for that. We are actually putting together a new limited Who Knew series. It's called Who Knew Presents the New World. And it's a five-part series that is going to focus on exactly that, the new world and the earliest days of colonization in the Americas. Now, part of this project is for some of our student listeners, we're actually putting this together as a summer assignment project for some of the rising juniors who are going to be in a push with myself and Mrs. Allgood. We are going to be releasing the episodes on our regular Who Knew feed. We hope that for our regular Who Knew listeners that you that you take a listen to those. Some of it will be review for our student listeners, but I think it's going to be some really good history. Mrs. Allgood and I are really excited about kind of diving back into that part of history, and we think it will provide some good information on the native peoples who lived in the Americas thousands of years before Europeans, and then how the Americas transformed with the arrival of Europeans. So stay tuned for that. We're really excited. Yes, so excited. There are so many topics that we're going to be digging into that I've never really explored in depth to this point. So I'm learning something. I hope you guys will too. It's going to be awesome. Before uh, before we dive into our official episode, though, Mrs. Allgood, I want to uh, ask you, because I know that you recently traveled to, and our diehard listeners will know, you traveled to your favorite city, the city that you frequently call, quote, the greatest city in the world, and that is, of course, Cleveland, Ohio. So how was your trip to Cleveland last week? Cleveland, she's doing good. Um, I visited my best friend from college, and she and her mom took me on a, a walking tour to look at all of Cleveland's historical bridges, um, which was super interesting, and I learned so, so much. Um, it was it was a good time. With things being closed, I didn't get a chance to look up uh, Chef Boyardee's old house, but uh, we did drive through Cleveland's Little Italy, which got me very, like, nostalgic for that one podcast episode that we did um it was it was awesome thank you so much for asking we had a good time so yeah cleveland was awesome um how is preparing for baby life going it's going pretty well so as i've mentioned many times on on our episodes if nothing else this time at home has given us a chance to really get everything prepared and kind of get us you know supplied with all of the necessary stuff we are we are doing a sort of a very very close friends and family baby shower in a couple weeks, and we're figuring out the social distancing and all of that because we obviously want to. We still want to be able to do that, but it's a uh, you know the the date is is fast approaching. It's August first is the is the uh, is the expected due date. So so we're we're you know we're we're everything. We're excited. We're anxious. We're nervous. We're 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 all of it. But we're obviously really really excited about the the new addition to our family. Oh, girl. Yeah, I'm sure you're ready. That's that's coming up so fast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's appropriate that we are recording this specific episode on this specific day 
But before we get into that, I, I'd ask you to, as we always do, to drop us into history. Sort of where are we today and what are we going to be talking about? All right, Mr. Rickson, it is the year of our Lord, 1865. 1865. Uh, on April 9th, 1865, General Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, effectively ending the American Civil War. Uh, only five days later, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated on Good Friday at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Also in this year, the Secret Service is founded. Makes sense. And uh, the first ever train robbery in the United States takes place. And on June 19th, 1865, the Union Army General Gordon Granger took the steps of the State House in Galveston, Texas, and read the following proclamation to the gathering crowd. <clears throat> The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. I had no idea that today's episode was going to include some voiceover work on the part of Mrs. Allgood, so thank you very much. Thank you very much for that reenactment of, you... uh, of June 19th, 1865. You're welcome. Happy Juneteenth, Mr. Rickson. So happy Juneteenth. So we are recording this episode on Friday, June 19th, which is Juneteenth, and there's obviously been a lot of stories about this in the news lately. It's been all over social media. And of course, it's again, we're, I think if we could put the most, the two most recent episodes into this, we sort of have of a piece where we did Ida B. Wells. We talked about the crime bill. This is, I guess, is the end of this three-part series where we talk about these issues as it relates to the issues of the legacy of slavery, police brutality, the criminal justice system, kind of everything what exactly is Juneteenth? So it is a combination of the words June and 19th, if you haven't already gathered. Uh, it's a day to commemorate the official end of slavery in the United States. It's also known by a few other names, Emancipation Day, Jubilee Day, which I love, uh, Liberation Day and Freedom Day or Black Independence Day. Um, it's very much like the Independence Day of the 4th of July that you and I are probably familiar with. Lots of celebrating and singing and food and prayer services. Um, it's not a new holiday, um, which I, I think what's been really interesting to see the revival of Juneteenth coming about right now really shows us kind of where we are as Americans for this really special and important holiday to have basically gone unremembered for the past 150 years. It's a very critical piece in the, the Black freedom struggle and a turning point for the country as a whole. It's something that really needs to be recognized by all Americans. But what's really bonkers, Mr. Rickson, is that Juneteenth didn't become an official holiday anywhere in the United States until the state of Texas made it a state holiday in 1980. 1980. This was 117 years after emancipation. So there is a really fascinating history behind what we're seeing around us today. So we said that this is June 19th, 1865. But if I remember correctly, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War on New Year's Day, 1863. And then Congress 
passed the 13th Amendment in January of 1865. So why did it take so long for specifically the enslaved population of Texas to become free? Can you can you give us a little background there? Okay, so like the official... I'll say official narrative, but like the reason that is mostly given is like, oh, it was the 1860s and news doesn't travel fast like it does today, which I mean is partially true. Texas is definitely the most remote of the Confederate states. It's really difficult to travel over land there. There's not a ton of river transportation. So it does take a long time for news to make it to Texas, but it took over two years. Like it's still the 1860s. We have telegraph capabilities. I don't buy it. There are a few conspiracy theories, which I am always a fan of. And I think that these theories definitely make a lot more sense than the news didn't travel that fast answer to why the end of slavery wasn't recognized for so long. Um, So theory number one, some say that the messenger carrying the news of freedom to Texas was murdered on his way there. Interesting story, lots of intrigue, but I'm like, okay, it's going to take more than just one person to get the news to Texas. So I don't really buy that one. Others say that Texas slaveholders deliberately withheld the news to maintain their labor force. Okay, I I could see that. Uh, Some believe that the Union troops actually kept the news of freedom to reap the benefits of one last cotton harvest, which they were financially benefiting from. That also makes sense. Uh, And of course, many people at the time thought that President Lincoln and his Emancipation Proclamation had no authority over Texas to begin with, since the Emancipation Proclamation freed enslaved people in the states in rebellion. Uh, Texas is technically part of another country, the Confederate States of America at this time, so what hold does this proclamation have over Texas? But either way, no matter how you want to look at it, Texas did continue the status quo of slavery way beyond what was legal at the time. And there's plenty of sources that do indicate that the slaveholding population of Texas definitely knew that the Emancipation Proclamation was passed and they did withhold that information from their population. Yeah, there's no question that I, in doing my research on my end, I had read a couple of these. The the one that does stand out to me is the one about the cotton harvest. And there are some conflicting narratives of did, did Union troops withhold it to get one last cotton harvest? Did Texans or Confederates do it? There's some sort of debate around that. But I, I think that you're right. It's probably a combination of a little bit of everything with the the sheer distance that we're dealing with, you're right, news does not travel very fast in the 1860s. And I think I'm sure there are probably some nefarious or malicious intent when it comes to the withholding of this information. So once African Americans learn of this, learn of this emancipation, how did or how have African Americans celebrated Juneteenth? And and specifically in Texas, let's kind of focus there and then kind of expand beyond that. Yeah, so Juneteenth definitely starts in Texas and kind of spreads out from there uh, with this initial thing that happened with the last enslaved population hearing about this news of emancipation. So the initial celebration in 65 is somewhat recorded. Um, Reactions from the people who gathered at the state house they range from just shock to just pure jubilation. It's said that some people stuck around to hear the rest of the speech while many others ran home to the plantation to just 
pack up their things and leave. What's, what happens next in Juneteenth is what's called the scatter. Many people traveled to neighboring states like Arkansas and Oklahoma and Louisiana, where some of their relatives had been sold. So most of what happens following Juneteenth is people trying to regather their families and Family is such a crucial part to the celebration of Juneteenth, but many had nowhere to go. But leaving the plantation to either go north, where it just seemed logical, or to go to neighboring states, just leaving the plantation was the first logical step of freedom, just leaving this place where you've been stuck for so long. But the actual celebration of Juneteenth dates back to 1866, the first annual Juneteenth, and it was mostly just held in Texas. It's something that's very closely tied to the church community. And that's something that's still absolutely true today in the Black community, which I I think is really important to kind of recognize the importance of the church and Black American communities. And this is something that we've also talked about with um, our episodes on Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells, particularly in a period of time where there's so much oppression coming at you from all ends. Usually the Black church is kind of the one place where Black Americans can voice their opinions and celebrate with each other without being hampered by nefarious forces, we shall say. Um, So that's pretty cool. Slowly, it spread across the rest of the South and it became more commercialized in the 20s and 30s. It kind of turns into a food festival like Fourth of July barbecues, that kind of thing. The success of the civil rights movement in the 60s is going to lead to a resurgence in its popularity. In the 70s, it was used to highlight Black American freedom in the arts. Some of the traditions start to include the readings of major Black American like poets like Langston Hughes or Maya Angelou. And the current Black Lives Matter movement, which we're seeing unfold around us, is again pushing this holiday to the forefront. Activists are campaigning Congress to recognize Juneteenth as a national holiday and If you were watching the news this week, uh, the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, announced that Juneteenth is going to become a paid state holiday in Virginia. So that's kind of cool. You mentioned kind of this this theme around July 4th. And I think that for most of us as Americans or those living in the United States, we we have a good idea of or we have sort of a shared narrative of the 4th of July. Right. It's barbecues. It's cookouts. It's going to the pool. It's watching a fireworks show or playing patriotic music or a 4th of July parade. There's there's sort of these common and shared traditions that all American communities incorporate with the 4th of July. Are there any shared or common traditions that are included in Juneteenth celebrations across the United States? I think it's so interesting that you bring bring that up because I think we can look at the 4th of July as kind of like an indicator point when we try to learn about the celebration and be like this is something that all Americans do. Juneteenth has never been a fully shared experience among Americans. It's really just been situated within the Black community. So Uh, It's mostly observed in local celebrations. There is no national Juneteenth celebration in the same way that you think of like 4th of July parades being like broadcast on like NBC or whatever. Like it's just, it's very different. Local celebrations tend to be hosted by historically black institutions like churches or colleges or 
civic organizations. Some of the traditions that I did read up on were really cool. Uh, in the early years, it was traditional for former slaves to toss their old ragged garments or clothes into a fire pit while wearing their Sunday vest, so like their really nice clothes, uh, to signify the transition from being property to being, you know, a person. So that's really cool. Not unlike the uh, celebrations that we see at the 4th of July, there's readings of the Emancipation Proclamation. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, readings of works of Black American writers and artists like Ralph Ellison, Maya Angelou. Some of the traditional songs are sang together, like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, Lift Up Every Voice and Sing. Depending on where you are in the Southwest, rodeos are very common. And I thought this was actually really interesting because I was reading just an article in the news the other day about a, a black cowboy organization in the Southwest that uh, traveled to Los Angeles to go march with their horses um, and like their Western attire in this uh, parade. And it's kind of interesting to, I always seem to forget that black Americans were among the first ever cowboys. And I teach this every year when we teach about like the wild West. Uh, so rodeos are actually kind of crucial depending on where you are. Street fairs, black parties, uh, cookouts, family reunions, historical reenactments, and Miss Juneteenth contests, which I think is awesome. Some foods are pretty synonymous with Juneteenth. Strawberry soda, which I thought was really neat. And uh, my personal favorite, Marcus Garvey salad, which I'd never heard of, um, but it's made with a mix of red, green, and black beans in honor of the black nationalist. How cool is that? That is awesome. Now, this is all, first off, this is all incredible history. And it's super important that we're having this conversation now, but I think it also, it raises a difficult question for us as an American society, and I think especially for you and I both as history teachers, and that's, why are we just learning about this now, right? You and I were never taught Juneteenth in schools. I really didn't know about the history and the significance of this, of this date really until the last couple of years, and, and even more specifically within the last couple of weeks in light of the protests around the death of George Floyd and all of the issues we've been talking about in our previous two episodes. So can can you kind of reflect a little bit on why why this part of American history has been neglected for so long? I'm glad you bring that up. And for all of our listeners, too, I want you to kind of reflect on your own experiences as something that you've ever heard of before um, or something that you did celebrate at home with your families. I know for me, I didn't learn about Juneteenth until I was in graduate school. It was 2017. I was taking a course on the long 19th century in African-American history, and someone brought up Juneteenth and other people were like kind of talking about it. And I was like doing that thing where you just kind of nod and smile and you pretend like you know what other people are talking about, which is kind of, it, it's embarrassing, but it also just kind of shows, sheds a big light on how history is taught in the United States. So I think, like you mentioned, this is something that you and I as history teachers are probably too familiar with. It's kind of uncomfortable. The reality of race relations in U.S. history goes against this progressive history narrative that most of our textbooks teach. It's just 
the way that the curriculum is. So what I mean by progressive history, it's this mainstream history curriculum that's taught in most schools. And basically the theme of this progressive history is, yeah, we made mistakes. We took land away from the natives. We enslaved an entire race of people, blah, blah, blah. But we overcame it because we're America. Yay. Rah, rah, rah. American exceptionalism. But this mentality is pretty dangerous. It basically erases tons of history that challenges this narrative because it just doesn't fit with the story that we're trying to tell. And we as a country haven't overcome the problems that we created by these quote mistakes. They've gotten worse and we're basically just pretending that racism and all of the problems and oppression just don't exist. And this makes it so much more dangerous. And we can also look at this historically, too, by looking at an education history point of view. So starting in the early 1900s, we start to see, uh, particularly in the South, a shift away from traditional homeschooling to classroom-based learning with mass-produced textbooks, the public school system gets created, etc. And as you might imagine, uh, history textbooks in the early 1900s were, by and large, not written by Black historians, uh, and they contained a very white-centric view of American history with no mention of the lives of enslaved people or Juneteenth celebrations. And I I would like to say that looking at the history textbooks that I've used in my classroom, we are starting to kind of move away from this, but I I don't know if you feel this way as well. It always kind of feels like Black history and women's history are kind of an addendum to every chapter. I feel like there's always a section at the end of like a U.S. history, like chapter section that says women and minorities face challenges. Like that's such like, oh my gosh, it drives me insane. That's it's good that it's being included, but it's not integrated. It's more of a footnote in many ways. And that's a problem that I think a lot of people are starting to see with the resurgence of uh, Juneteenth celebrations this year in the Black Lives Matter movement. So, of course, by using this white-centric view of U.S. history, it's kind of it's led to the whitewashing of Black history and this myth of the happy slave, which is something that we try to teach in my class, but it, it, it's kind of difficult. Um, it's something that's pretty evident in pop culture. If you look at some classic movies like Gone with the Wind or Song of the South, oof. and it's very much evident in vintage history textbooks as well as some modern ones. Well into the 1990s, uh, some schools were still using textbooks that referred to enslaved people as workers or servants or like family and claimed that plantation life was happy and idyllic and just why would you want to leave and go somewhere else? And this is actually like true of my own experience as an A-Push student. And I took A-Push in the 2009-2010 school year. It wasn't that long ago. It's something that's very widespread. It's not just a Southern thing. This is something that's very evident in all of America. So to all of you guys listening, ask yourself, If you've ever heard about these things in your U.S. history classes, Juneteenth, the Tulsa Race Massacre, the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, there are so many super important parts of Black American history that just are overlooked or put in as a footnote for one reason or another. And I think, of course, as history teachers, you and I, Mr. Rixon, we're familiar with the challenges of fitting 400 years of history into 180 school days. It's not easy. We complain about it every year. Every day. (laughs) Uh, But speaking for myself in the past few weeks, 
it's been really enlightening for me to see the things that I've been leaving out of the curriculum just because, oh, there's not enough time to cover this or I have to do this because I have to teach this for the A-push test or this isn't part of the SOLs or whatever. But it's super important to integrate the history of racial strife into what I'm already teaching and not just put it as an addendum. I mean, by not teaching Black American history, we're unknowingly erasing the contributions of Black Americans to American culture and society by just leaving them out. It's uh, teaching the history of all Americans is essential to move the country closer to reconciliation and the truth. It's true history. And history teachers, I think, have a responsibility to show that Black Lives Matter in the classroom. I think a lot of what we do just kind of starts there. It's, I don't know, at, at rant over. I just, I got very passionate in this and I was expecting to put together an episode on like barbecues and strawberry soda. And then when I like got into it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is some crazy stuff. No, I think that your your point is well taken. And I think that it's interesting that you, you mentioned this, this idea of sort of when we teach things and the chronology in which we, you know, so often as history teachers, we start the school year in pre-Columbian America. We talk about the Native Americans. We talk about colonization. And then if you're lucky, you're probably talking about the Civil War and the issues of racial justice and equality and emancipation maybe by Thanksgiving, and that is an incredibly generous timeline. But it makes me think that we're having these conversations now in a moment when, even in a normal environment, we're not in the classroom with our students right now. And so I think that 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 really should, should, I think, challenge us as educators, and for that matter, challenge our listeners and our students to really think about what we're actually teaching and and how it's explicitly taught. I think that, to your point, there is this narrative of progressivism or exceptionalism where it's this sort of yes, but theory, right? It's yes, we did these things, but we overcame them. And by but saying- But it's better. Look at where we are now. Right. And But that also implies that we have learned and it's over and we ha- we can forget about yeah. it. We have to get past that stuff in order to talk about all of these other elements of history. And I think that the past few weeks have shown us that we have not addressed these questions. Not only have we not addressed these questions in the day-to-day lives of our communities when we think of policing and criminal justice and public safety, but we are still grappling with this argument as it relates to our monuments, our memorials, our holidays, what we commemorate, what we celebrate. And this this conversation needs to continue. And I hope that in some small way, our podcast and this particular episode, and, and really the last two episodes that we've done, will continue to push this conversation in, in, a, in a better and more productive direction. Let's finish uh, today with... Something, uh, uh, somewhat of a lighter note. Uh, how about our fact off, Mr. Rickson? Sounds good. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and go first. First off, as always, thank you for doing the, the lifting, the heavy lifting and the research for this particular episode. So I'll, uh, I'll let you catch your breath as I do our first, our first fact off here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so as you mentioned, 
there is no federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. Juneteenth is sort of celebrated at the state level or regionally or in local particular communities. So you might be asking, how do we get a new federal holiday? How does that happen? And the answer is, lobby your congressional representatives. Congress has the sole authority to create federal holidays. And and federal holiday is a very specific term. That means that federal offices are closed, stock trading is suspended on Wall Street, federal employees are given a paid holiday, and the holidays are established by Congress passing legislation, which then must be signed by the president. Now, the most recent federal holiday established by Congress actually has a parallel to Juneteenth, and it's Martin Luther King Day which is celebrated on the third Monday in January. MLK Day was only established in 1983. And of course, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. And as you can imagine, Southern congressional leaders were vehemently opposed to establishing a federal holiday for an African-American civil rights leader. In particular, Jesse Helms, the senator from North Carolina, who Helms was a notorious white supremacist and segregationist, he argued that King should not be honored with a federal holiday because, one, he was opposed to the Vietnam War, which I think history has proven him right in that case, as well as spurious claims that Dr. King was a, quote, action oriented Marxist. So I think this really speaks to the very complicated conversations that we're having, the very fraught conversations, right? We are once again thrust into the middle of a debate over what we do with Confederate monuments. Should we have Columbus Day? We we continue to have these conversations over and over again. But if nothing else, listeners, if this is something that you care passionately about, Talk, talk to your congresspeople. They're the ones who pass the laws. They're the ones that create federal holidays. So if this is something you want, call your representatives. Tell them how you feel. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. I think that's one of the most pertinent ways for uh, the youths, excuse me, uh, to speak out and exercise your, your democratic privileges. You're right. I, I go for it. That is awesome. So I'm going to make fun of Texas for a minute. We talked earlier about how Texas got the news of emancipation like super late, apparently. Uh, but Texans also didn't know that the Civil War was over by 1865. They were fighting an extra two months of the war. In fact, the last battle of the Civil War was the Battle of Palmito Ranch, which took place May 12th through the 13th, 1865, on the banks of the Rio Grande River. Some cool facts about this. The 62nd colored regiment from Missouri. Missouri fought on the side of the Union, so that was kind of cool. There were also only about 20 casualties in this particular battle. It wasn't super bloody, but it was considered a strategic victory for the Confederates, which must have been pretty embarrassing to find out later that the Confederacy didn't actually exist when this battle was fought. It kind of reminds me of the the history around Andrew Jackson. And for our listeners, especially our student listeners, you may recall that one of the things that brought Andrew Jackson to national prominence was he was the commander of U.S. forces at the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812. 
What is, of course, ironic about that is the Battle of New Orleans occurred after the Treaty of Ghent, which ended the War of 1812. Of course, in 1812, news traveled way much slower than it would have in 1865. But I think that there is a little bit of historical irony that we frequently acknowledge these moments, even though the wars or the conflicts themselves were technically over or had been uh, declared uh, over with peace treaties or something like that at that particular point. Yeah, got to get that battlefield glory, Mr. Rickson. Uh, always, <laughs> right? So, that's, uh, but, but I digress. <clears throat> so we, while we said that the United States does not have its own federal nor national Emancipation Day, there are several countries around the globe that actually have their own Emancipation Days commemorating the abolition of slavery in their respective countries. Now, there are, there's an Emancipation Day that is celebrated in South Africa. Most of the Emancipation Days are in the nations in the Caribbean, particularly those that were controlled by Great Britain. Great Britain abolished slavery with the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which banned slavery throughout the British Empire, and one of the hubs of British slavery was in their Caribbean holdings, so many of the islands of the Caribbean that are now independent nations. Those countries celebrate that on August 1st, which was the first day on which the Slavery Abolition Act was enforced. But I think it's important to note for our listeners, you you may have heard me say that that law was passed in British Parliament in 1833, which means that Britain and its colonies prohibited slavery 32 years before the United States. After Juneteenth, not all enslaved people were instantly freed. Texas is, a, Texas is a big state, and General Granger's order, and the troops needed to enforce it, were slow to spread. Many enslavers deliberately suppressed the information until after the cotton harvest, like we discussed, and some beyond that. In July 1867, there were two separate reports of enslaved people being freed, and one report of a Texas horse thief named Alex Simpson, whose enslaved people were only freed after his hanging in 1868. Woof. <laughs> it's always a horse thief, am I right? Always, always a horse thief, right. <laughs> so, so should I do this last fact for us here, Mrs. Allgood? You go ahead. So when freed people tried to celebrate the first anniversary of the Juneteenth announcement a year later, they were faced with a pretty significant problem, and that was segregation laws. So in light of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, many of the former states of the Confederacy passed segregation laws or black codes, which restricted African-American access to public places, parks, etc. So in the 1870s, former enslaved people pooled together $800, and purchased 10 acres of land in the city of Houston, which they deemed Emancipation Park. Now, that's a nice that's a nice part of the story that African Americans pooled their resources and tried to get this plot of land to celebrate with their community. But sadly, that was the only public park and swimming pool in the Houston area that was open to African Americans until the 1950s and the Supreme Court case of Brown v. Board of Education. So I think in closing with this last piece of the fact off, and and I think we mentioned this in our Ida B. Wells episode, 
progress, unfortunately, we have this progressive idea of history that a law was passed, a court ruling occurred, a war was won, and then immediately life changed in the United States. And I think that the conversations we've been having about Confederate monuments, Ida B. Wells, lynching, police reform, Juneteenth, I think show that sometimes it takes a long time for progress to be achieved, but that should not discourage us from stopping our pursuit of progress and equality throughout the United States. So I'll I'll just I'll leave us with that with that thought as we sort of conclude this again, I think this sort of three-part mini-series, if you will, on on African Americans and the black community in the United States and not only the the challenges, but some of the successes that uh, that, that community has had um, for all, all Americans. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Mr. Rickson, for your, your thoughtful words of wisdom here. Um, I'm sure our students are anxiously awaiting the next time they can be in our classrooms and hear it face-to-face. Um, but anyway, uh, listeners, if you're still here at this point, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you learned something good, and happy Juneteenth, you guys. Absolutely. Happy Juneteenth to everyone. As I mentioned at the the top of the show, we're going to be taking a break next week from this feed, but we encourage you guys to stay tuned for our mini-series, Who Knew Presents the New World. We're going to be working on that, and we will be putting those not just on a separate feed, but on this regular Who Knew a History podcast feed. But until next time, this is Mr. Rickson and Mrs. Allgood, and we'll see you guys at our next episode. Take care, everybody. Bye.